all you beautiful people, and welcome to the Glorious in the Mundane podcast. I'm your host, Christy Knuckles. It is so wonderful to be back in this space with you. It has definitely been a minute. (laughs) What I've loved over the past month or so that I've been away from the week-to-week podcast schedule, I found myself writing down things that I need to tell you, and it's just made me realize that you've been sort of like a long-distance friend or maybe even a pen pal of sorts to go really old school on you. But it just makes me really happy to be talking to you again. That's all I'm saying. I had a young woman out in Phoenix stop me at a conference that I was leading at a few months ago, and she told me how she had just moved out to that area and didn't have any other believers in her life at the moment that she was able to be in community with. And with big tears in her eyes, which, of course, brought tears to mind immediately, she told me that I had been the believer, really the only believer in her life that she was currently walking with from listening to my podcast. So I just kind of sat there and cried with her and was like, that blows me away. I know I say it a ton, but it just made me incredibly grateful for this simple way in which we feel connected. And then I get to look forward to somehow articulating the things that God is doing in my life, smack dab in the middle of the ordinary, and really in glorious moments that become glorious somehow through the simple act of us remembering together. And when we take time to remember, I say it all the time, we reflect and we respond and we stay awake. And it's in these wakeful moments of our awareness that we're on the lookout for God to show us that His promise really is true, that He's with us. Sometimes He doesn't make it obvious at all, does He? Sometimes He seems silent or distant. Yeah, and sometimes He entrusts us even with silence and distance so that our faith can be challenged, that it might push forward in growth. Sometimes He uses a simple podcast to draw us and bind us together over the miles so that we feel like the family of God that we really are, because often we forget, don't we? If I might be really honest with you, I spent the month of April drifting a little bit, If you follow me on Instagram, you might have seen that I lost two people that I loved within a month of each other. There I was so ready to delve into what was stirring, and then I felt like I literally got broadsided by a train. My family and I went to California for spring break to spend some time with our friends out at Saddleback Church there, and then we took the kids with us on to Phoenix for a women's conference that we were leading for Lifeway Women. And I'll never forget walking off the stage and seeing my youngest, Annie Rose, standing there with my phone. And she said, Mommy, I think something really bad happened to your friend, Laura. Her husband had called my cell phone. The kids were holding on to it for me while I was on the stage, and he had left a message. And now that the iPhone has this feature where it transcribes your voicemails, the kids had read it. It said, Hi, Christy. This is Dan. I just wanted you to know that Laura passed away last night. Please give me a call. I just stood there and I read it over and over, just not even able to believe what I was reading. And I had literally just led her favorite song on stage, 10,000 Reasons, a song that I've led too many times to count. But for some reason, even before I knew about her death, I had just led it with a different fervor somehow. It seemed almost prophetic looking back on it like it was this refrain in which I was to receive this news, a refrain that would carry me through the next few days till I'd sing it with a room full of strangers as it was the benediction for her funeral. 
that last verse ringing out, and on that day when my strength is failing, the end draws near and my time has come. Still my soul will sing your praise unending, 10,000 years and then forevermore. I'd actually never met Laura's husband face-to-face until the day of her memorial. I didn't know anyone at the service except one mutual acquaintance, but I couldn't seem to find her in the crowd that morning. I'd gotten there early for the visitation with the family, and the voices of Laura's friends and colleagues reverberated so loudly underneath the pitched roof of the chapel we were in. It was just a bit loud for my current mood. There we were together in Suburbiaville with all our walls up, at least mine were up, all this nervous chatter with even these occasional roars of laughter in different parts of the room. And I have to admit, I was really agitated by the sound of laughter in that moment. I kept thinking, isn't there a time to grieve? Everyone was hovering around Laura's husband, and I just kind of sort of watched from afar. His eyes were weak and tired, but I could see him just sort of propping himself up with each new conversation, rising to the occasion because it was what he had to do in the moment. And with Laura so close in my thoughts and in my heart, I literally caught myself a few times thinking, I need to text her about how this visitation is going. These people are just being flat rude. And I had to remind myself again and again that she was gone. I couldn't text her about her own funeral, nor could I text her ever again, even though I could pull up her name on my iPhone and look at it and see our text thread. I couldn't send another one to start a new combo. We couldn't be annoyed or make snide remarks about how all of it was going. So in my usual introverted fashion, I retreated from the crowd. I unnecessarily visited the restroom a few times. And after that, I just found a couch to sit on so I could just kind of wait till I saw the move of the crowd go into the sanctuary. And as I waited, here came Dan, now a widower, looking like the weight of the world was now on his shoulders. And I'd already thought about on my drive to Georgia that day how Julia, their freshman in college daughter, would now begin coming home to what feels like an empty house. The heart of the home won't be there. She'll need to be a new source of comfort to her little brother Ben. But Dan, his best friend and his bride, had vanished, and I could see it wearing away at his soul. I'm so shy in crowds for real and with people I've never met that as I spoke his name out loud, I literally gave myself butterflies on the inside when I said, Dan, my name is Christy Knuckles. He looked so surprised as he immediately and just warmly hugged me and said, thank you so much for coming. This means the world to us that you're here. And Laura would be so grateful. His eyes just filled up with tears. I hoped somehow I could just be a person of peace in that moment for him. I barely knew what to say, but I've learned in those moments that that's actually best. The very best thing you can say in that moment to someone who's just lost the love of their life is, I'm so sorry for your loss, and I've been praying for you, and I'll keep praying for you, and that's enough. I told him that Laura had been heavy on my heart the week before she died, and and now how much I regret that I didn't at least text her to tell her I was thinking of her. I'd gotten really busy with plans for spring break and just kept thinking I'd call her the next week. And it's just a great reminder that when someone's on your heart, you need to reach out. He shared how it had only been three short weeks, literally from the moment she was diagnosed with cancer until she was gone. I spoke quietly and reverently because that's what felt right. And with a shaky voice and weepy eyes, he said, can I take you to meet my family and hers? 
First, I met his sweet dad, who immediately began to just brag on what a great realtor Laura was, how she had even helped him with finding the house in a different part of the country. And I smiled as he kind of rambled on, just knowing that that was his way of saying, I can't believe she's gone and I'm hurting. He led me over to an area where Laura's brother sat with his family and her sister with hers. Immediately, I could tell that this was family. They were quiet. They weren't laughing. They didn't know anyone else in the room. This was Laura's family from Savannah, whom I'd heard many stories about. And when Dan introduced me to her sister, we talked briefly, and my heart just sank when she said, excuse me, I got to go greet the others, because I was so sad because I just wanted to sit and pick her brain just so I could hear her talk. Her voice was Laura's to a T. Later during the service, that same sister read from Ecclesiastes 3. I closed my eyes, and tears rolled down my face. I wished somehow that I was at some other kind of event, and Laura was still here and alive, and that it was really her voice reading, For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. I jetted from the service as quickly as I could. I could barely breathe, honestly, and I didn't want to hear any more booming laughter in the high-pitched chapel. I just got out before everyone else, and I walked to my car in the rain I'd been invited to the house for a meal afterwards, but I just told that one mutual friend that I needed to decline and get on the road to Tennessee. However, I didn't get on the road. I found myself in the Hobby Lobby parking lot, eating Chick-fil-A, watching my windshield wipers swish back and forth. Then, of course, anytime I'm near a Hobby Lobby, I feel the need to at least pick up one 67-cent bottle of craft paint because I'm weird. So I found myself aimlessly strolling down the aisles of paper bending flags and checking to see if the lamps were 50% off that week. Plus, this was my old Hobby Lobby. In fact, it was the one nearest the house that Laura had helped us buy in Alpharetta only nine years before that. I don't know. It felt like something she'd want me to do after her memorial, to just go get in my creative brain space. But also maybe it was a little bit of the suburbia villain me. Maybe I didn't nervously laugh out loud in the chapel, but I sure could medicate a heartache with a good old dose of Chick-fil-A nuggets and an endless craft store inventory. I wanted something familiar and something to touch and see that was simple. Even the 90s worship tunes set to elevator-style arrangements overhead set me to ease somehow. I got a piece of fabric cut to frame and hang in the new guest room space that we'll finish in a few weeks. These were all things that I could touch and feel and see and still understand somehow. And that's how my week unfolded when I returned home. I spoke so few words that week and even the week following. I visited all my favorite home decor markets and discount stores that I hadn't been to in ages. I spent about an hour in the TJ Maxx pillow aisle just piecing together color combinations that I didn't even have any intention of buying. 
I cleaned out cabinets and closets, vacuumed rugs, rearranged shelves, made pillowcases from old scraps of fabric. I hemmed curtains. I de-dog-haired my white couches, all the while carrying Laura and her family in my heart. I learned something new about myself and grieving. Working with my hands and my creative brain is both a means of processing and hiding for me. My hurting heart needed the cleft of a rock. Throughout the entire experience of Laura's death and memorial, I was actually engaging in what would be my last phone calls and text with our dear friend Steve Seelig. Nathan and I met Steve at the very first Passion Conference in 1997. He was our connection to many things in those early years. In fact, it was Steve's idea that we visit Franklin, Tennessee back in November of 1998. Just a dream about possibilities. And this was when we first sat down with Rockytown Records. We built a friendship with them that would later turn into a partnership with them. We'd release five records as Watermark. Steve even got us our first big tour. We did 80 cities with the group Point of Grace. Nathan and I had never left the Bible Belt, and we didn't have kids at that time, so it was our first time to really see the country, basically. We did 40 major cities in the fall, 40 cities in the spring. Steve even got us our first cut, which is the term when you land a song on another artist's record. He helped us dream up much of our early start and was that voice of wisdom through the years. And I remember him sitting us down not too long before he got really sick, and he made a he made us promise to him that we were still doing small things for free. He was like, I'm glad you're getting to do these big things, but I want to make sure that you're still willing to do what seem like the small things, because those are really the big things. And well, if you've listened to my podcast at all, you know that that theme is still very much threaded throughout our lives. In fact, the week that Steve went to be with Jesus was Holy Week. And all of us were on alert. We were praying for Steve's pain to be kept under control, praying for Benita and for the kids, praying for wisdom for the doctors, but also waiting for that text that would tell us that Steve was finally healed forever. When we got the news, we then waited by the phone to see when the celebration of his life would be. That week was just a little bit hectic for us on the home front. Nathan had gotten a phone call earlier that week that one of our good buddies who was in Chris Tomlin's band was hospitalized from an accident. And Chris's crew was calling in to see if Nathan could come fly out and join the tour very last minute to fill in. I'm happy to say that our buddy is out of the hospital now and he's doing okay. But Nathan did jump in, and I'm glad he had that flexibility to do that that week, to get on a plane, to be able to do that for our friend. But it had us kind of texting back and forth saying, okay, if Steve's celebration falls on this day or this day, it's going to be almost impossible. And on top of that, we had been long committed to a Monday Thursday event, which is the day before Good Friday, that my precious brother and sister-in-law had had planned. It's a family Seder dinner that they had planned, but it was also their fundraiser for their ministry called With You that they're just launching and getting off the ground. This is Amaryllis Kristen, by the way, for the, for you podcast people um, who've listened for a long time. And Kristen had long been studying the beautiful Seder celebration. And if you've never participated in one, especially led by a believer in Christ, you need to make a point to do this as a family. It is 
one of our new favorite things. This is the Passover experience that Jesus himself as a child would have grown up partaking in. And of course, during the Lord's Supper, it's the very it's the Passover where Jesus interrupts and says, this is my body broken for you. So the symbolism is just so incredibly rich. And we were to lead worship for it, experience it as a family, and also the whole kind of story was being woven around our song, Wrap This One Up, from my Christmas record. And so we knew deep in our hearts that we felt that we just could not miss this thing. So we're just kind of waiting by the phone. Well, that Tuesday, we also appeared to have a touch of the stomach bug, which we may never know what it was, but let's just say at the time, it felt like a fiery little dart from the devil on Holy Week. (laughs) All in all, of course, Steve's celebration needed to be scheduled for Thursday, our one most impossible day. So we knew that we were not going to be able to make it to Houston to be a part of his celebration. I texted Benita and his son and daughter that day and said, Well, Steve always wanted us to be about the small things and to still do them for free. And I told them about my brother's Seder celebration and that we already had people coming to that and it was planned and we just knew that we were supposed to be there. This beautiful time of just beholding the Lamb of God together. And one story that I actually know that happened from that Seder experience that night that's just beautiful is a man who was there with his wife and his kids actually dropped them at home and drove back up to the venue to just talk to my brother. He came to the door and he just said, I want to know this Jesus that was celebrated here tonight. So those are those things that you just know in your heart. I don't know why, but I know we are supposed to be here. And so thankfully, the family let us make a video. We sang Knees to the Earth And they played it at Steve's celebration. It was a song that he had chosen for us to sing that day. And thanks to technology, we were sort of able to be two places at once. Certainly in our hearts we were there, but we were able to also be a part of that day. And Beth Moore was one of Steve's best friends on the earth. In fact, if you've heard the podcast where I interviewed Beth, Steve is the whole reason that Beth and I even met. And Beth spoke at the memorial. I got to watch the live stream of it. And she, of course, had me rolling and bawling all at the same time. And Louis Giglio followed after Beth, and I just sat there and thought, wow, the impact of this man's life literally has reached epic proportions. He loved, loved, loved connecting people. I wish all of you could have known him. I am absolutely convinced that on the day that I arrive in heaven, he is going to be wearing some sort of outlandish costume, and he's going to be my tour guide. <laughs> the last few months with Steve, thankfully, we all had the sense to know that these were our last, and we had the luxury of having that time, knowing that he was going to pass. At the end of February, it would be our last conversation face-to-face. So thankful that the Broken and Free tour had taken me to Houston so that I could rent a car and go see him and his precious wife, Benita. And we had our last laughs giggling that Steve was still as woody as ever, even though the brain cancer was pressing in like never before. We had our last selfie, taking us several tries because neither of us liked it for the first few times. We had our last side hug and a kiss on the cheek with a friend who was really more like a father to Nathan and I for so many years. We had our last goodbye, 
I knew in my heart as Benita rolled him into the room for his nap that it was the last time I'd see him face to face on this side. It was hard to see him so weak because he had been such a rock in our lives for so many years. We exchanged a few texts and a phone call after that, but the texts got harder and harder to understand until one day they just stopped coming. And I checked in with Benita, told her I hadn't heard from him in a while, and sure enough, he had been taken to hospice care, was in loads of pain, and it had just gotten to be too much for Benita to handle on her own anymore. Talk about a woman who loved till death do us part. She fiercely took care of this man who'd been her husband and best friend for decades. And even through all of that, the day I visited her, she sat me down before I left and held my hand and said, I want to pray for you. And I sat there just humbled and blessed right to the core. But I think all the grieving got me inside of my head a bit. I think all of us have coping mechanisms and ways that we tend to deal with things. Me, I get really, really quiet. And this morning I told God that I was thankful that I still wanted to talk to Him. And I asked Him to keep my heart soft and not like a stone. I asked Him to show me my blind spots. I asked Him to keep me awake. And I feel like at the end of April, seriously, I sort of woke up in a paddle boat of sorts and was like, wow, I'm kind of far from shore. I think my first reaction was, oh my gosh, I need to start paddling like crazy. I've got to fight my way back to shore. But what I found is when we put our flesh to work paddling back, it only ends up in more exhaustion. But God in His mercy, the mercy of the month of May, is for me to remember that He's with me. And instead, to put my spirit to work in knowing that He's right here with me. He's right here in the drifting paddle boat with me. And what I've discovered is sometimes He gets really quiet too. And not bound by time or space, He waits for me to rest. And so much can unfold when we discover He's with us. So much unfolds when we give Him permission to rescue us which permission is actually a form of confession when you think about it, because you're saying, not only do I believe you're here and you're with me, but I believe you can and will, and I want you to rescue me. Exodus 14, 14 says, the Lord himself will fight for you. You need only to be still. Stillness in his presence equals paddling to shore. This is a confession with your heart and mouth that he's with you and that he fights for you. My sweet friends and I hosted our last well gathering for the women of Nashville before summer break last night. And honestly, I'm always just sort of laughing at the condition that we are in before we lead. God in His mercy most often has us in a place of such utter need for Him, such dependency to agree that I can't even explain. And for whatever reason, there's such a freedom there for me as a leader, often that I don't sense even anywhere else. But last night, for most of the set, I just led from my knees. I'm not trying to sound spiritual, trust me. I wish I could say that I was dancing all over the stage, which I've had those moments too. But last night, I went down and literally could not get back up. Every truth coming from my mouth, which side note is such an important thing as a leader to make sure that we're declaring biblical truths and prayers in our worship leading. I knelt there declaring it with every part of my heart. My posture was, God, this is true of you. And you are to be praised. And I kept hearing parts of Isaiah 61 that says, He bestows a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, 
and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. So as a leader, I put it this way, all the Christ in me was full tilt in proclaiming truth from my knees. And honestly, when we are the emptiest, the neediest, and the level to the lowest we can go, it seems the more the Spirit of God is invited in and says, thank you. Thank you for letting me come and work in this place. And from my knees, I just kept saying, God, I release these women to you in this place. Come and do what only you can do. This morning, I got proactive in my resting and being still, and I went and got my promise tags that I've told you about before, made by With You Ministries, who I was telling you about before, my brother and sister-in-law. But there's these 31 tags, each with a scripture where we're promised in His Word that He's with us. I read through all 31 of them. (laughs) Then I just started hanging them all over the house. I hung them from lamps and stuck them on shelves. I picked two that I felt would encourage Nathan— And I hung them on his lamp by his bedside to see if he'd notice. And I hung two by my lamp. Mine says, one of them says, 1 Chronicles 17, 2. It says, do all that is in your heart, for he is with you. I want to see that promise when I wake up in the morning. I know this sounds like a commercial, but it's not. (laughs) Because I actually texted my brother today to tell him, I'm going to talk about the tags in the podcast today because I used them. So just a heads up. So it's not an infomercial here, just a for real me picking up a resource this morning, literally handmade by people I love very much. And what they spent time making actually aided me today in my walk with Jesus to place promises all over my house, to get proactive in my being still, to be forward in my thinking in terms of His rescue over me today to let Him paddle for me. If you'd like some of these With You Promise tags, you can go to withyouministries.com. I'll also have a link in my website next to the podcast if you're listening from there. I was thinking today what a great graduation gift this would be for somebody, maybe cram some money down in it. But what you'll get is 31 handmade tags on a pretty parchment paper and the sweetest little linen bag. Are you ready for this? Sewn by my mama, Susan Hill sweetest true story. (laughs) A well-known craft store that I may have mentioned earlier used to carry the size bag that Eric and Kristen were using for these tags to be put in, and they stopped being able to carry the size that Eric and Kristen needed. So, of course, Eric and Kristen, you know, curate everything because they want this little linen bag to be hand-stamped, and it needs to be just, it needs to look right. So they looked and looked and couldn't find these bags anywhere else, So my brother got with my mom and asked if she could maybe make them. So my mom went to the fabric store and found just the right linen and just the right cording for the little drawstring, and she started making them. So she sends them to my brother about 100 at a time, made with love from our precious mama, who indeed we rise up and call blessed today, this week with Mother's Day coming up. My mama has always come to my mind when I hear the verses of Proverbs 31, She puts her hands to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor, and she reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for her household are clothed in scarlet. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens up her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed." Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. 
Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. I guess I'm getting to be a part of that today for my sweet mama. Letting her works praise her in the gates, the works of her hands, but also the work that she did instilling the fear of the Lord in my heart at such a young age. And by fear, I mean a reverence and an awe of the Lord, a sense of considering what He has done, that His works are wonderful, and letting my heart know it full well as I became even an adult, a sense of trust in the Maker of all things, a deep sense of knowing that to not consider Him in all my ways would be utter foolishness. She taught me what forgiveness truly looks like and how you take steps with your life in such a way that forgiveness by the Spirit of God in us forges a new path. It turns the Titanic. It alters the course. It changes our destiny. I don't think I'll ever even know all the hidden ways my quiet little mouse of a mama was actually a fierce warrior on my behalf and on behalf of my dad and my brothers. So to all you hidden warrior mamas out there today, praying prayers in your laundry rooms and letting forgiveness forge a new path while you're doing dishes, you are blessed. Those of you repeating the same drill day in and day out, wondering if anything you're doing and all the thousand unseen moments will ever make a difference, it does, and you are. My childhood looking back was everything dull and mundane and plain and simple. Every time my Annie Rose says she's bored, I just look back at her and say, yes, boredom is wonderful. Go listen to music. Go paint a picture. Go pretend something. Go get better at something. Spend a thousand hours doing something that you love, and chances are it'll shape you from the inside out. I used to get my mama's hot rollers out. Do you remember hot rollers? (laughs) The ones my mom had were these crazy-looking ones from the 80s. There was this very hard plastic kind of case that it came in. It was baby blue. I remember the base. And then there were about 12 cream-colored hard rollers with bristles in them. And when I was bored, I would put on my Maranatha Praise album on my record player, and I would pretend that these hot rollers were a choir of singers at church. (laughs) I would move them around. I would kind of get them on and off the stage. I would kind of let some of them do little step outs and have a solo. I would put them in different configurations. And I like to think maybe I was kind of ahead of my time that maybe I was dreaming up the first transition from like a traditional church choir to maybe like the praise team. (laughs) Yes, it's very weird that I did this, but nonetheless, it was one of my favorite things to do when I was bored. But just think how it foreshadowed in so many ways what was to come for me. All those boring days, like the summer days that are quickly coming up, you mamas, just let the stress fall off for a minute that you don't have to fill up every one of those moments. Let them be bored. Let them play with sticks on the porch. Let yourself be bored. Go sit in your chair and read for a bit. Let yourself sit on the porch for more than five minutes and listen to the birds. Yes, I just compared my mama to the Proverbs 31 woman, but we all know that the Proverbs 31 woman had servants. So there's that. My mom certainly didn't have servants, and there were certainly times that she chose to just let us be bored. She chose sitting in the stillness over a clean kitchen She chose sitting at the piano with me for hours, playing any song I wanted to sing. 
overhauling me in the car to every sport and activity known to man. And after all, playing with kittens in our dirty garage was really, truly where I learned to sing to God. So mamas, let off the gas a bit, pump the brake, allow yourself to sit in the sometimes uncomfy space of sitting still with the God who isn't bound by time or space, and let him carve out in you a space for him and watch him redeem the time later. I truly hope you have a wonderful Mother's Day. I get to be with my mama this Mother's Day, and that hasn't happened for several years, so I'm so looking forward to that. And another mama that I want to tell you about that I recently got to sit with, who is one of my favorite people, honestly, that I've gotten to sit down with in quite a while, is Mrs. Kay Warren. Kay is the co-founder of Saddleback Church with her husband, Rick Warren. She's an international speaker. She's a best-selling author and a Bible teacher, but she's really best known for more than 10 years of her tirelessly advocating for those living with mental illnesses. When her youngest son, Matthew, who struggled with mental illness, took his life in April of 2013, Kay's life was dramatically altered by the catastrophic loss. As she and her family continue to grieve the loss of Matthew, she is determined to be a voice for those living with mental illness. Her message to the faith community is to eliminate stigma, shame, and fear, and to create warm and accepting places of refuge for those who suffer. Kay is the author of several books, including Choose Joy, Because Happiness Isn't Enough. That came out in 2012, and she's now released a book that you're going to hear her talk about today, this month, that I'm so excited because I'm a pastor's kid, but it's called Sacred Privilege. This is a book that Kay wrote about the journey of being a pastor's wife all these years. And I think even if you're not a pastor's wife, you are going to love all that she has to say in this book. It's incredible. When our family was out in California leading at Saddleback for spring break, I snuck over to Kay's office on a weekday, and I just sat with her for a little bit. You will love her honest heart. In my opinion, there just aren't enough leaders, but especially high-profile leaders in this world that have her point of view and her heart posture and you're going to love everything she has to say. But to introduce her, I thought I would read her husband's review of her new book that I literally just found on Amazon. I went on Amazon to see when the book officially released, and I saw Rick's review of it. It was the first review on the page that I just thought was darling. He says, I know you're thinking, well, you're biased. You're the author's husband. Of course I'm biased. No denying that. I've lived with this woman for 42 years with all the ups and downs, all the good and bad and ugly, and I'm more hopelessly in love with her than ever. Read my foreword to this book. But dot, dot, dot. I am also, all caps, the most qualified person to tell you that this author is the real deal. What Kay shares is exactly what she has lived. There's no phony baloney here, no glossing over, no photoshopping or airbrushing out the painful parts. These truths have been tested by fire, sweat, blood, and tears. And because we've committed our lives to supporting and encouraging couples in ministry, I hope every person married to a minister reads this book. Here's a little understood secret. The impact and influence of the wife of a pastor may be the most underestimated influence for good in our culture today. Few realize how many benefits and blessings these women bring to their communities. Few realize how much they've shaped the past, shaped churches today, and are shaping the future at the grassroots level. 
They are stealth change agents, leading in days of change, confusion, and chaos, encouraging the discouraged, comforting the grieving and brokenhearted, challenging people to become what God intended them to be, defending the defenseless, lifting up the fallen, showing grace to the broken, teaching, reaching out, caring, and sharing the burdens of others in the seasons of life. I can't think of a better intro of Mrs. K. Warren. Well, I am so privileged to get to sit down today in her office, her space, mm-hmm. with Kay Warren. Well, my space, and I welcome you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much Absolutely. for having me, and um, we just got to be um, with your whole team this weekend at church and led Saturday and Sunday, and then got to be with your worship leader team again this morning. And the best, aren't they? They are. They have such great heart. They are, and I told them that they've really become a place of peace, but really just people of peace in our lives. And um, this place has become that, and we've frequented, you know, like yeah, just coming we out love having here. You. And and I feel that way about you guys, just a little bit I've gotten to sit with you, and so I'm excited. This has been, well, I mean, I feel that way about my church, and, you know, we're mm-hmm. Easter will be our, you know, our 38th. Easter. And so for 30, almost 38 years, you know, um, it has been, this church has been that for me, mm. you know, as a person and as a disciple yeah. and a minister. So I'm glad when other people feel some of that as yeah. well. It's really special. Well, I was so excited um, to know that you were going to get to sit down um, and share um, about what's on your heart and that you would sit down with me. I'd kind of wondered and asked, and I was so excited that that was going to happen. And But then to find out that it was timed with this release of this book. Oh, this I month. see. I just, God, God knew that I would have given you an interview any day of the week, <laughs> but how sweet that he made it so that it would be, you know, we could talk about sacred privilege at the same time. So it's so sweet. awesome of God to yeah. to do that for me. Yeah. So um, how long have you been working on this book in particular? I know you've written other books. Yeah, I've written other books. Um, I started teaching this material to um, pastors' wives, ministers' wives in 1988. It was the church had started in 1980, and so we were eight years Mm -hmm. in, and we held our first, at the time, called a church growth conference. We don't haven't called it that for, you know, decades. It's been church health conference, but we started it and I was, um, I talked to a few, you know, women who came. And at the time I was saying, um, you know, what I was learning, which was how do you grow with your church? Because we were in Mm. a church that was growing and, and it felt like every day it was changing and, and my role kept changing. And so I was learning, how do you grow with your church? And I was teaching that to other, um, pastors, wives, ministers, wives. And then I just kept learning and kept teaching. And there was sort of this middle season where, um, you know, raising kids and being a ministry wife and Mm. being a partner here in ministry was overwhelming. There was just so much. And I kept feeling at at that particular season that, you know, the ministry could kill me. It maybe, (laughs) maybe it's just going to flat out kill me that I can't balance it all or live with Mm. all the pressure. So then I changed the title of what I taught um, to how to keep the ministry from killing you. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I really did and taught it that way it. for several years. Um, and then when I, you know, here at this stage, I'm 63 and we're at the place of, you know, mm-hmm. we have less ministry ahead of us than we have in the past. Yeah. And because uh, we've been in ministry 42 years and, mm-hmm. you know, we're not going to be in ministry for another 42, not not likely. So as I looked at that, I go, 
well, what is it that I really feel at this point Mm. about it? And I can honestly say, I feel that by and large, it's a sacred privilege. Mm. It has been a sacred privilege to serve in ministry, to be by Rick's side as a partner and team and in ministry together. And I feel like that that's the, when you see it that way, it enables you to get through some of the harder points. If you see it as if it's a burden, it's a duty, it's a hated thing that you do, you're going to have a hard time surviving it. When you Mm -hmm. see it as a sacred privilege, you've got a much greater chance of lasting in ministry. Mm, I love that. Um, I'm a preacher's kid. Ooh, see, I knew I liked you. (laughs) Me too. Um, Rick too. We're both preacher's kids. Yeah, so it, it especially um, just, I was especially excited mm. to see that you were really opening up um, about this world. And I hope, too, that even those listening, um, that you don't tune out like, oh, I'm not a PK or I'm not a pastor's wife. Um, but there's so much to learn from people who have just been doing life even 20 years longer than us. Well, there's and, so many things about um, the Christian life. It doesn't matter really what your role is. It doesn't matter whether you're a pastor's wife. doesn't matter whether you are an, a church member or attendee. The, the basic principles of how to go through life, serving Jesus, loving Him with your whole heart, um, mm. learning from the things that come our way, those are applicable to anybody. Those are yeah. universal lessons. I just mm. take some of those universal lessons and specialize them you know, a little bit for people yeah. who are living in full-time ministry. But Really, loving God, serving Him, surrendering to Him, those are those are not unique mm. to being in the ministry. Yeah, it's so true. I love that. Um, well, there must have been times where being a pastor's wife, especially a pastor's wife of what grew to be something <laughs> larger than we were expecting. Yeah, <laughs> larger than life sometimes, I bet it feels. But um, what did those times look like for you, and how did you handle those when it wasn't? Didn't maybe feel as much like a, a privilege. Yeah, yeah, and there, yeah. I I wrote an article the other day that said I've loved almost every second of yeah, being in ministry. Yeah. Um, yeah, there were definitely times I wished Rick had been, you know, a plumber or mm. pharmacist or anything besides a pastor because mm. the pressure, um, probably around the pressure that people put. The two things I would say have been around the pressure that, and expectations that people in um, the pew or the theater chairs, whatever you sit in, um, put on those in ministry, that kind of pressure. And then secondly, what's been hardest to deal with has been um, sometimes the encroachment into mm-hmm. our family life of of the way that the ministry can encroach in your family life. Yeah. And in those two particular scenarios, that's been the hardest place. So mm-hmm. um when it talks about the pressure, having grown up in a pastor's home, um, I grew up in a time when you just didn't talk about your problems. My mom and dad were very warm, very loving people. They were very engaged in all their congregations, but it just, it wasn't a time when you talked about problems. Yeah. Uh, my brother was a heroin addict uh, for a period of time. I was molested as a child. My dad had been divorced before mm-hmm. he went to seminary Um those were secrets. Those yeah. weren't things that we talked about. I mean, my dad, having been divorced, I never heard him give a single sermon about it from his own life, from his own experience, because yeah. yeah. you just didn't talk about it. Yeah. So when Rick and I got married and began to have marriage problems just right out of the gate, I'm, we descended into marital health so fast. Mm. And and he was already a youth pastor. It was like, where do we go? Mm. Who do we talk to? Everybody thinks that we've got it all together, yeah. that we were the perfect couple. And how can we be 
in misery mm-hmm. even before we get out of the honeymoon. And and it just created this sense of there's nowhere to go and you just you didn't get counseling. Yeah. It was all if you love Jesus, you know, the way to have a happy marriage is you love Jesus and you love Jesus and that's all the marriage <laughs> advice you need. And <laughs> right, and we right. love Jesus and we were still mm-hmm. so miserable. So learning to deal with those expectations to accept mm-hmm. the fact that we can't walk on water that we can't live on this tiny little teetering pedestal, mm. you know, people's yeah. expectations, that we couldn't live inside this crippling box of, of mm. being perfect, mm. to get rid of all that, to mm. let that go, mm. to recognize that we are just human beings, just people who need Jesus like everybody else. Mm. That was the way that we began to deal with that pressure part mm. of ministry. And then the part of like that encroachment, yeah. the times on— you know, on a Friday night when my girlfriends and their husbands are going out to dinner or they're going to see a movie with a group of friends and my husband is locked in his study, you know, writing furiously on a message or we have Saturday and Sunday services and have for forever and ever. And on the Saturdays, I'm out and I see all these families riding bikes together, heading out to the beach. And again, my husband's in his study studying and our whole weekend is going to be consumed with church that's that has moments when I've wanted to say, could he have been anything, you know, <laughs> anything but a pastor? Because mm-hmm. um, feeling missing out, yeah, feeling sure. out missing out on some things that other families got to do. Um, but that's where I've had to go back to mm-hmm. um, what is it has God called us to do? Um, not that God has called us to completely sacrifice our families. I don't mean that. Mm-hmm. It was just. If, is the cause worth the cost? Yeah. And and answering for myself, yes, mm. the cause is worth the cost. Has it cost us to serve Jesus full-time in ministry? Mm. Yeah, it has. Yeah. And I wouldn't deny that. And I wouldn't deny that, that it's hard. Mm. But we have found our way to be creative and spending time together, spending time with our family, making sure that our family felt important, that our kids knew that they were valued, that our marriage was important. Mm. We've just had to do it differently than other people. You know, our family doesn't look exactly like a non-ministry mm-hmm. family, but it's possible. But we had to figure out how to do it, yeah. and it's a stress. Yeah, it's a stress. Yeah, I so appreciate just your transparency with all of that because I know it's just going to be so helpful to so many. I hope I so. Yeah, I love it. Um, you just mentioned a little bit about um, the pedestal, mm. and um, I know just especially it seems like um, the Western church culture, even in the last, even six or seven years, I feel like has, um, there's a, sort of this, you know, celebrity vibe that can quickly happen. And I know that Rick wrote a pretty well-known book. <laughs> Remind me the name of it. It's got purpose in the title, doesn't it? Something like that. <laughs> um, so I'm sure that that, was maybe unexpected and came on pretty quick with you guys being in the fishbowl. And, um, but the pedestal thing, I mean, just even recently I've just, you know, so many of our friends are in, in that boat. And even with what we do, we, we're recognized for what, what we do. And, and, but, um, what does that look like to take real practical steps? I think with your people to, to not be on that pedestal and what are the dangers if, if you, if you don't, you know, yeah, kind of T 
teach and come down off of that. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. Well, the dangers are, you know, first of all, it unfortunately to think to have people think you've got it all together all the time actually feeds our ego. Yeah. There, there's a part of our sick self mm. that likes to be thought of that way who doesn't want to be thought of as having mm. it all together or being a model for other people mm. there's something you know that kind of um, expectation and, and adulation can feed the ego yeah. in a really um, unhealthy way so it can lead to soul shriveling I think at yeah. the very least it can lead to hiding and pretending it can lead to leading from a false sense of self mm. a, a false image of yourself and so you're not being really truthful with people first mm. john 1 9 says that when we walk in the light as he is in the light we have mm. fellowship with him and with one another i don't think we can have true fellowship with each other if we're not walking in the light if we're not mm. being honest about where we struggle where we hurt where we have our doubts where things are hard mm. and so not only does it do something to our own soul mm. to not be honest about our lives i feel like it keeps us from the one thing that is the antidote to this walk on water stuff which is mm. being known you can't know and be known if you're not willing to walk in the light, if you're not willing to let who you are be seen. And that's that took a long time when, um, like I said, when our marriage was so messed up in the beginning, and then we went to seminary and it just continued. And, mm. and then we, um, fortunately, we had finally broken through our shame and mm. our guilt and started with some marriage counseling. And even that took many years. It, it just got us going. So here we'd started Saddleback. We were finally on a little bit of path of being honest about the fact that our marriage was hard and that we were so different and didn't know how to communicate and didn't know how to make anything. And nothing worked. Sex didn't work. We fought about money. And then we fought about our fights. And, you know, <laughs> it just became this vicious circle and cycle of um, not getting along and, and being miserable. But, but coming to the place of saying, we need help. Yeah. And I think that that pastors and their families have to understand that while it's totally okay to have a private life, you know, I don't really need people analyzing the contents of my what I buy at the grocery store, although they do all the time. And they make <laughs> comments. Should Pastor Rick really be eating that ice cream? And I'm like, ah, you know, and that's real and that happens. Mm. So I'm entitled to a private life, mm. but I'm not entitled to a private sin. And that's where clergy couples get mixed up and get messed up sometimes mm -hmm. because they are so afraid to be real about the real stuff going on, to share it, be vulnerable, admit that they need help. And then they try to walk on water and they can't. And then, they, <laughs> and then it just gets messier and messier. And then they're afraid to ask for help. And the gap between their private life and their public life starts to grow. Yeah. And when the gap between our private life and our public life gets too wide, you have to push the pause button and get help. Mm. I mean, it's never going to match perfectly because we're we're imperfect people. We're always going to mess up. We're always going to be maybe a little more irritable with people at home than we are. So the, there's not going to be this absolutely perfect matchup. But if that gap gets too wide, and, mm. and so that when your kids are looking at you going, man, if anybody really knew, mom and dad, how we live in this house mm. compared to the way you make us portray it out there, um, when that starts to happen, no, man, you've got to push the pause button. You've mm -hmm. got to get help. So I think that um, that's been important for us to learn. 
And then, so like I said, so what happens is your soul shrivels, you lead from, from broken places, people don't get to know you, you're not known, you don't know them, you can't walk in the light. Mm. And it can lead to a place for some people that something dies on the inside. Yeah. And it can be their walk with God, it could be their ability to stay in ministry. I, I mean, the reality is, Christy, there will be people who are listening to this, and in five years from now, they will no longer be in ministry. And it won't be necessarily because God called them to do something else, which is God's prerogative to do. It will be because they left under a cloud of either failure or a weight of shame and guilt Mm -hmm. or the load of criticism or trying to pretend or trying to fake it. They leave because they can't do it. They didn't. They couldn't survive the pressure cooker. Mm -hmm. The only way I know to survive that pressure cooker is, is to build resilience. Building resilience means you learn how to take care of yourself. You learn how to live in the light. You learn how to ask for help. Mm-hmm. You learn to get off that pedestal because it's a very unhealthy place to be and it's miserable to boot. And you just come down and you be like like Paul says in, in Acts where he talks to the folks that were trying to make them gods, you know, call them gods. And he's like, you guys, we're just merely human. Mm-hmm. We're just Merely humans, just like you. To me, that's some of the best advice for anybody in ministry. We're Mm. just humans, Mm. just like you. We need God's help. We need to live in the light. We need help to live in the light. Yeah. That's just so needed um, as far as just someone like you just sharing that even is going to break someone's world open today. And I that. hope so, because I've been on the other side of that. Mm-hmm. I've been in that prison of people's expectations. I've yeah. been, I, I've tried to balance myself on top of that mm-hmm. very tiny little teetering pedestal. I've, mm-hmm. I've tried to walk on water. It just, it's impossible. Yeah. I don't want to do it. And I won't do it. Mm-hmm. I won't do it again. Yeah. I've, I've, I've loved living in the freedom mm-hmm. of, of walking in the light. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. Um, well, I, I definitely know because of everything you're sharing that you're not the perfect family. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and neither are we and neither is anyone, but, um, I, I did notice, you know, we, we got to have lunch with y'all once when we were here ministering and I loved that, um, your adult children were around and I love, um, how affectionate you, you are as a family. I just think it's really precious and I think it's, it says a lot. Um, and I know you've been through so much. It's just almost unimaginable as a family, um, even in the last um, just several years. And so um, I appreciate just how you guys have um, helped other people through that. But honestly, how you even, I know you personally, and there's a personal part of that that no one will ever know. And But even just how you did publicly, um, how, how you've um, dealt with all that and helped others at the same time, it's just so precious and it says so much and so I would love for you to talk about um even starting from that place where you said um motherhood at a point just became it became so overwhelming I would love to know first just kind of um in that time where you were almost like teaching like uh, where you said you know how do you not let ministry right. kill you or whatever right, right, your title right. was <laughs> right Kind of what were some practical things just for those moms maybe who are listening today who are literally in that overwhelming space of um, they do feel this call of ministry on their life or even an occupation on their life to um, be Christ out in the marketplace sure. or the world. 
Um, but that's not the season they're in. Right. Kind of talk about that maybe overwhelming time. And then I would love just maybe just touch on through the years how you have guarded that with your children. I know so much of that was just pressing pause and getting help and all yeah. the things you just said. Yeah. But also just, I guess, with your children through the years, um, just the fact that they're still with you on the yeah. journey. They just, still like us. They still, <laughs> apparently they do. So. I know, unless they're just, you know, totally pull the wool over my eyes. I yeah. think they actually like us. Um, yeah, well, our family is just as complicated as, you know, anybody else's. Mm-hmm. And um, because we had someone in our family living with mental illness, because our youngest, Matthew, lived with mental illness from the time he was very small. I mean, mm-hmm. he was diagnosed with depression at seven and he probably would have been diagnosed sooner if I had understood that children can have a mental illness. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. Mm-hmm. We just kept thinking we knew he was different than his older brother and sister, but I just kept thinking he would grow out of this behavior or mm-hmm. this would change. It just never crossed my mind that mm-hmm. mental illness was um, what we were dealing with. So when you live with someone who has a mental illness, it shapes your family. And mm-hmm. our family has been profoundly shaped by the presence of someone with severe mental illness that just got worse as the years went by. You know, in so many ways, we were a normal ministry family, if you will. Um, in other ways, we had the extraordinary challenges of, you know, of living with mental illness. Um, and it's really just even since Matthew died in 2013 that his his older brother and sister have begun to unpack emotionally what that was like. You know, when you live with anybody who has an illness, uh, the family tends to rally around the weakest link in the chain, you know, the weakest member of the family, which I think is what should happen. That's mm-hmm. what's so beautiful about strong families is when they can rally around the weakest um, member of the family and, and reorganize life around that. So I don't have any regrets about that. But what I'm, what I do have regrets is how hard it was for my other kids, mm-hmm. and hard in ways that I didn't even understand until mm-hmm. their brother passed away, and and we've begun to slowly talk through what that looked like. So in some ways, I wasn't even aware mm-hmm. of um, the difficulty that that caused for them when they were growing up. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, we're just reorganizing our family now, you know, the dynamics of the family changed because what was at the center is no longer, you know, there in that same way. But um, some of the stuff that Rick and I tried to do through the years was to not raise our kids with the idea that anything that we're doing is because they're the pastor's kids. I remembered from growing up and Rick did too, since he was also a, a preacher's kid, we were both told there are some things that we had to do because we were the preacher's kid. And we were also told there are some things you can't do because you're the preacher's kid. I'm sure you can identify with that. You just you just can't win because there's people that want you to do things because of who you are, and people telling you you can't do things because of who you are. Yeah. And so we tried to modify that with our kids and say, we never said, well, we're not doing that, or we're not seeing that movie, or we're not going to that place because your dad's the pastor. We always tried to say, what is it that we think a follower of Jesus Christ Mm-hmm. should do or be in this world yeah. so that any standard or any um, parameters that we tried to put around our family were not because of their dad being the pastor, yeah. but because we were trying to live a Christ-honoring life in, in front of a watching world. And um, we did that as an attempt to not put them into that pressure box. So that was one thing I feel like we did right. Our kids would still tell you they did not feel 
when other people tried to pressure them, they could come home and we could say, nope, that's, you know, that's not why we do that. Mm -hmm. You know, I can see why those folks thought that, but that's not why we're doing it. So we tried to make that really clear. And then I think one of the other things that, that we did right was to teach our kids um, to run to God, that, that there was a God who loved them unconditionally long before they even knew he existed. They were mm-hmm. loved and that he was the God to run to with their doubts. He was the one to run to with their questions. He was the one to run to when they didn't understand this world or understand even their family. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of kids who grow up in pastors' homes learn from an early age to run away from God that he that they don't have the sense that he loves them unconditionally that he's not this god who smiles with pleasure when he thinks of them mm-hmm. and but we knew that our kids weren't going to get that lesson unless that's the way we treated them that we could say it all that we wanted to oh you run to god he's there in your mistakes he's there when you doubt he's there when you mess up unless we were going to be those kind of parents and so we tried to, in our relationship with our three kids, to be grace people so that when they messed up, they could come to us. That when they had doubts about God and about faith and about the way that He's put this world together, that they could express those to us, that we didn't run from those. Matthew, in, um, in, in his later teenage and young adulthood, really struggled with God. Part of it was the mental illness. Part of it, he was just wired in this exquisitely sensitive way. And when he saw his own suffering and the suffering of others in the world, he just couldn't reconcile it in his mind. And he died actually pretty angry at God. Mm-hmm. But rather than shut that down and and tell him he couldn't talk, you can't talk like that, or you can't ask those questions, we tried mm-hmm. to, to model, even as parents, that he could express that to us so that he would always know that he could run to God, just like he could run to us. He could run to a God who would accept and could handle his questions and his doubts. Mm. Um, And when our kids messed up, we wanted them to be able to come to us. So when they were frightened, when they were worried, when they'd messed up, Mm. when they had doubts, we wanted to be people they could run to, always knowing that we were modeling the God that loved them. And if they didn't get it from us, they weren't going to believe he was like that. And so I think that that has led to both a closeness with us today mm-hmm. and a closeness that they have, my older two particularly, with God. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of things you'd like to do over as a parent, but I think we did those two things as well as we could. Yeah, I love that. That's so important. Um, well, um, I would love to know, since this is called The Glorious and the Mundane, the podcast, um, I would just love to know some practical ways, even still, that um, there might, or it might be a memory that you have early in ministry, or, um, but just some ways that you either personally or as a family have experienced God. I think, you know, just in the ordinary things of life, I think that there's this, um, you know, sort of lie, I guess, um, with a lot of people that, oh, I have to be in ministry, or I've got to be on the stage, or I've got to, um, you know, be out of this season of my life to be growing and flourishing, and but I'm not quite there yet, so I must not. But really, um, I love to just share moments on this podcast of how the Lord has met me in my minivan, or He's met me at the kitchen sink, mm-hmm. um, or, you know, honestly, it all started for me. I tell the story of cleaning a toilet one day and 
felt the presence of the Lord and he spoke to me and sent me to a psalm. And so I would just love to know some of those moments. Like you've already shared yeah, a, a time that you live from that place. Well, but. Rick is, I, I think Rick is, um, you know, in the Winnie the Pooh school of personalities, I'm an Eeyore. <laughs> Didn't mean to make you spit your water all over the place. Um, Rick is a Tigger. I mean, he out Tiggers Tigger. And um, he was, so if I was the rule keeper in the family, he was the fun meister. And so, so many times he would um, take the kids on what he called a daddy's magical mystery trip. And uh, from the Beatles old, you know, you have to be old to know this, but uh, from the Beatles, you know, I think Yellow Submarine album or whatever. But the point is he would get them up at, you know, maybe they were in bed and at 10 o'clock he would say, let's go get in the car. And they go, you know, they're sleepy and they're like, what, what, daddy, what are we doing? And he'd go, it's daddy's magical mystery trip, magical mystery tour, get in the car. And he would get in the car and he wouldn't even know what he was doing. I mean, he was making it up as he went. So maybe we'd stop at, you know, Thrifty and buy the 10 cent ice cream. And then we would go from there to the beach and walk on the beach in the moonlight. Or maybe we would actually get in the car and go overnight to some, you know, little cheap no-tell motel somewhere and um, do something together. He never planned it. It was just spontaneous. It was fun. And, you know, I'm always going, they have to go to school. You can't get them up. You don't understand. They've been up three nights too late already. You know, I'm just the rule follower and the schedule follower. (laughs) He's the rules are made to be broken kind of guy. And um, so I think when I could relax and get out of my my head and enjoy those times, those were truly some of the most special glorious times with our family. It's like, this is what I love about us. Mm -hmm. I love that we're together, that we're being silly, that we're being playful, that we're um, doing something unexpected. We're busting out of the boxes on the calendar page. We're just loving life and enjoying it together. And those are, those are the times that, you know, those beautiful moments in which you want to say, um, I am loving this moment. Mm. And those are amazing. But I also had to learn that, particularly with a child with mental illness, Mm. I had to learn to love some moments that weren't quite so fun, not quite so special, not quite so, Mm. you know, noteworthy, write them down in your calendar page as a, you know, this incredible moment. Um, I'm thinking of one time when Matthew was um, probably 11 and we'd had to pull him out of regular school because he wasn't doing very well and we were homeschooling. And so I had a friend who was um, who was a special education teacher and she helped me augment the, the teaching. And so we had gone to the beach one day uh, here in Southern California and it had been a winter storm. So the, the, the storm had thrown driftwood and um, sand, you know, ugly sand and driftwood and trash and stuff all over the beach. Mm-hmm. And it was not pretty. It was not one of those take a picture postcard, <laughs> you know, of the beach days. It was it was actually pretty ugly. It was kind of cold. The wind was blowing. But here we were out on the beach and I looked up from my misery because I'm feeling pretty miserable. My son's not in school. He's he's troubled. He's I don't know what's wrong with him. Mm-hmm. Why am I having to sit out here at the he should be in school playing with his friends. So I'm having this moment of sadness yeah. about my son. But I look up because I hear this sound and he's he's got a stick and he's chasing a seagull down the beach and he's laughing at the top of his lungs. He's having a blast. You know, he's running, laughing, playing, 
jumping over the waves. Um, it, it didn't matter that there was driftwood. It didn't matter that there was trash. It didn't matter that it, that it had been a storm. He was having a great time in that moment. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, I am loving this moment. Yeah. And all of life, I think, has been just that constant lesson. Yes, there are moments that are beautiful. Write them down. Mm-hmm. You know, this day we did this as a family and it was spectacular and it was spontaneous and I'm loving this moment. But then there's also so many other times when it just doesn't look the way you think it's supposed to look. Yeah. There's a lot that's out of place. There's stuff that's broken. There's stuff that's not right. Yeah. There's stuff that you would change in a heartbeat if you could because mm-hmm. it's so painful. It just is so painful, and you don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. Tomorrow might be worse. But to take that moment and say, I am loving this moment, um, that's carried me through. It's kind of set me up even for after Matthew died um, to be able to still find joy in life, to still find beauty in this life, to love moments, to not have to have my life all neat and arranged in a bow on top and I would give anything if all three of my children were here. I wish Matthew was here. I wish Matthew was with me. I'm glad he's in heaven. I mean, why? of course I'm glad he's in heaven. But I want to live my whole life with him. And figuring out how to love the moments in between the sublime, glorious ones and the ones that are just even sometimes not what we want, but still finding God in that moment still finding beauty in that moment, still mm-hmm. believing that that life is good and God is good. Um, you can love even those moments. Yeah. Thank you so mm-hmm. much. It's just so beautiful. And I'm so grateful for um, just your life and how you've shared. And so looking forward to getting to read um, The Sacred Privilege and for others to get to just to glean from. Thanks, Christy. And just thankful for the longevity of um, your lives. So, Thank you. Can so I tell you one more thing? Yes. Okay. <laughs> so this is a shameless plug for your Christmas CD. <laughs> you didn't ask me, but I just, I wanted to tell you, you came and you sang at Saddleback during Christmas and you, you know, you have this new album and it's called Amaryllis and you have this mm-hmm. beautiful picture of an Amaryllis mm-hmm. plant on the cover and you have this song about Amaryllis. And I have to tell you, I didn't know much about Amaryllis, those, that plant until um, I listened to your CD and I've just been captivated by that song in particular. Mm-hmm. I've played it over and over and over, and mm-hmm. I bought an amaryllis plant you for did. two. Uh, one, a woman whose uh, daughter was murdered mm-hmm. um, a few years ago, her little girl, mm-hmm. and um, in the winter of her life, and waiting mm-hmm. to be able to bloom, but wanting to bloom even in that, yeah. and to a friend who was going through some very large transitions that she didn't know how to navigate, and her went and the, her life felt very much like the winter. And I bought them both, these amaryllis plants. And then after I bought one for them, I bought one for me. <laughs> and um, and so when it arrived, when mine arrived in the mail, and it's just, it's the ugliest thing. It just <laughs> looks, just this gross little ball. ball with these weird nothings to them. And I started watering it, put it in the windowsill. And within a few days, there was this tiny little green sprout that started coming and I have watched it and it it has bloomed in winter and my two friends that I sent it to um, both of them said it was the most meaningful thing that they had heard the the concept of that God wants to bloom in our winter and I just wanted you to know of all the years and stuff that your ministry has has meant something to me even 
I mean, just right now, the most current, that plant is still, I cut off the last blooms last week. They bloomed and bloomed and bloomed and been such a beautiful reminder for me of winter and blooming and in my winter of grief and loss. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I love that so much. Thanks. I have pictures to show. I would love to see. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks again for joining us. Thanks, Christy. Love you. Well, I so enjoyed connecting again with you today. I hope listening was literally like wind in your sails. And happiest Mother's Day to all of you mamas. I'll talk to you soon. 